we are America. We have walked, cracked bare feet across hot white sand. We have fought the salt-choked sea to be free. And then we have crushed rich black dirt into chains like the one we have loved so we hurt. We have cowered for just a moment as we rose. Those in power smashed the stars who we are, lost in ghettos. We have starved beneath rock-hard ribs, empty table, lonely heart, all to this, a list of rights on paper. Do they say who we become? America, we shape her. Truce rendezvous is the sun, everyone hidden behind linen, behind fabric, behind hopes, hidden behind what we think and who we are to know. Now, we stand. We stand in wonder. Narcissist, theorist, a homeless man, clutching those dream hands and under the same false honored flag, liberty. Sylvie Darling, thank you so much. Um, she, she's 13. She wrote that when she was 11, uh, which is just incredible. I'm 33, and I still procrastinate on returning emails. So that's great. Uh, thank you, Sylvie, for, um, for sharing that with us. Uh, what, an incredible, what an incredible poem. Uh, Mike Cook sent me that this week. Um, I was like, oh, we got to share that. And this is the line that really got me. As we rose, those in power smashed the stars who we are. Lost in ghettos, we have starved, breathed rock-hard ribs, empty table, lonely heart, and to this, a list of rights on paper. Do they say who we become? Wow. That is an incredibly heavy line and powerful words from the youth of our nation, 13 years old, incredible. Uh, these words, they're reminiscent of, um, of lyrics of one of my favorite bands from my childhood, Rage Against the Machine. Um, still one of my favorite bands. Yes, we are gonna talk about Rage Against the Machine this morning at church. Here we go. Um, now, Rage Against the Machine, I cannot in good conscience recommend them as good listening for a 13-year-old, um, so I won't. Uh, but uh, I started listening to Rage in high school. It's a pretty standard origin story for a teenage punk rocker. I wanted to do something that I wasn't supposed to do, and so I did it anyway. Um, I remember seeing Rage albums at my local FYE. Does anybody remember FYE, right? I wasted a lot of my parents' money at FYE. Uh, CDs, movies, posters, DVDs. It's literally an antique store now. But Back in 2002, it was like heaven on earth uh, for me. Um, Rage albums, they stuck out to me because they had this little black sticker in the corner, right? Um, you know the one that Tipper Gore was obsessed with? Um, in, fa in fact, all that sticker did was tell us what music we should listen to, right? <laughs> all the best music had that sticker on it. Um, Wow, this is getting, this is spinning out of control. Now, I really, uh, it really got fun when technology came out where you could burn CDs, right? The millennial version of the mixtape. Some of you, some of you may know where I'm going with this. Um, now be honest, because the Lord is watching, 
raise your hand with me. Uh, how many of y'all burned one of those CDs with the parental advisory sticker, but put the first three songs as like Christian worship songs, right? Like just in case your parents found them, right? I can't see anybody. Anybody raising their hand? Wow. Wow. Very, very dishonest crowd on July 3rd. That's, um, uh, you know, it would go from like, come, now is the time to worship, you know the one, to uh, will the real Slim Shady please stand up. This was, this was my CDs in the car uh, growing up, um, just in case my parents found them. Uh, those were the days, right? We, we really, really, really thought we were fighting something then, didn't we? Um, I'm getting distracted. Uh, what I really want to talk about is, is Rage Against the Machine. I spent uh, way too much time this week trying to find a Rage song that Mike could do this morning, and I, I was, you won't be surprised, I was unsuccessful um, because they're so angry. They're so angry, uh, which, is, which is incredible. It's a beautiful thing what kind of art our emotions can make. Uh, what could happen when we allow our passions, the things in life that burn inside us, when we allow those things to move us forward, when we allow those things to pour out of us, beautiful things can happen. And is there a better holiday to celebrate the parental advisory warning label than the 4th of July? I'm not sure there is, right? Like, this is the weekend, this is the time that we celebrate our declaration of independence, the ultimate rage against the machine. So here, I just want to read one line, one sentence, one little bit from our, from our founding document. <clears throat> we, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America and General Congress, assembled appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do, in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as a free and independent states that they have full power to levy war, concludes peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do, and for the support of this declaration with firm reliance on the protection of, div of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other ourselves, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. That's one sentence from the Declaration of Independence. That is a single sentence. It is the closing sentence where Thomas Jefferson authors the declaration that we shall be a free collection of states. There's a reason that we study this in eighth grade history and not English because the entire Declaration of Independence is one run-on sentence. It's unbelievable. Um, did you know that Thomas Jefferson, he was only 33 when he wrote the Declaration of Independence? He wasn't, he wasn't even part of Congress. He, wasn't, he didn't even sign it. He was like an assistant or something like that. He, he wrote this, 33 years old, goodness me. Sylvie's writing poems, Tommy Jay's sticking it to the man, and I don't know, I've got a couple ribeyes that I'm excited about this weekend, so um, that should be fun. <laughs> 33 years old, right? And it's these words, it's his words that serve as the foundation of this country, this incredible experiment that we call America. It's easy to enjoy and to revel in it now because 
we know how it ends, right? But can you imagine the weight of this moment 246 years ago, 56 men representing the 13 original colonies that gathered to put pen to paper to declare war and to declare independence from the King of England. It had to feel a little like the dog catching the car, right? Like, oh, wait, wait, wait a second. What do we do now? Now that we've declared what we want, what do we do now? Do you think they imagined the future in that moment? Or did they get overwhelmed by the heaviness of it, by the weight of it? Or were they, were they a little disappointed that like, they had built up this, this great moment and then they signed it, and then they were thinking to myself, man, it's gonna take six weeks to get there. Like, how do you think that moment felt? How did they celebrate the hope of this country that they were dreaming of? One of my, one of my favorite quotes about our, um, about our country, about our America, uh, it comes from the political scientist Sam Huntington, and he writes this in his book, American Politics, The Promise of Disharmony. This is in 1981. He says, America is not a lie. It is a disappointment. But it can be a disappointment only because it is also a hope. I imagine that those disappointed Americans, what would become Americans, sitting there to put pen to paper to declare their independence, I'm sure that they had hope on their mind, right? Sam Huntington is writing this in 1981. It's six years removed from Watergate, Nixon's pardon, Iran-Contra. It was a pretty crazy time for American democracy. So when I hear a quote like this, it's important for me to remember its context, right? When it was said, but it's also, I think, important for us to understand the hope that he's talking about. On December 18, 1620, the Mayflower lands at Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts. Why? Why did this, why did this group of, of Europeans flee Europe and travel all the way across the Atlantic Ocean to come to America? It's because they were refugees, right? These first Americans braved the Atlantic Ocean. They braved the waters, the deep, long travel they left Britain so that they could worship their God their way. They were known as Puritans, and they had they'd been given the option to conform or to leave Britain. Essentially, if you don't like this country in the way that we do things, then get out. These first Puritans, that's, this, we are the response of those first Puritans answering that question. And so they did, 102 of them, 102 refugees on the Mayflower, fleeing religious fascism so that they could start a new life in a new world where all were free to worship their God their way. And over the next 150 years, that's exactly what happened. Political refugees from all over Europe began immigrating across the Atlantic. The Puritans, the Lutherans, Baptists, Mennonites, Amish, Methodists, atheists, all settling along the East Coast of Central North America, building small little refugee settlements that would grow into cities and eventually colonies, each unique in the way that they govern and equally united by a spirit of freedom uh, for their belief and for their ability to practice it freely. Which leads us to tomorrow, 246 years ago this ultimate punk rock moment of rebellion and defiance, these colonies declaring their independence 
and consequently set a new experiment in motion, a new way of organizing a society that the world had never seen, a democracy ruled by the voice of its people where expression and a choice were inherent. I just can't get over that Thomas Jefferson was 33. <laughs> he wasn't even the youngest, though. Alexander Hamilton was 21. James Madison was 25 when all this was happening. These were kids, relatively. The oldest, George Washington, 44. Yet they had a dream and they had a vision, and even at that young age, they had a dream to they had a dream of something bigger. And they were willing to make the sacrifices necessary to see the, that dream become a reality. One might go as far to say that they took the ultimate leap of, leap of faith. This collection of immigrants living in the infancy stages of a society is going to risk everything that they have to go to war with one of the greatest empires the world has ever seen. And they didn't know what was going to happen. All they knew is that they could no longer live this way anymore. A new way of living, a new way of doing things was going to have to take hold for this ragamuffin collection of semi-organized colonies to set their differences aside, including their religious differences in the name of freedom and democracy. Imagine for a second what they would have had to give up everything that they would have had to leave behind, every little comfort that they had built, even under this oppressive empire. That empire would have provided structure, would have provided order, would have provided safety. In many ways, it offered a future, yes, a limited future, but a future nonetheless. But when their, hands, their, when their pens hit the paper to sign this declaration, there was no going back. Right? Life would never be the same again, and no amount of comfort and security would be guaranteed. Just the dream that life could be different, and the trust for one another that despite the differences in opinions, that they wouldn't divide. I don't think this leap of faith, this step forward, is any different than the one that Jesus is asking us in the gospel is any different than the one that the Bible is calling us to, and any different than the one that we've been looking at in the book of John so far this summer. For the last four weeks, Mike has been, has been walking us through the Gospel of John, and in the same way uh, that we went through Luke last summer, chapter by chapter, and as I read through the book, as I read through the Gospel of John this week, um, I noticed something I hadn't before, uh, and maybe it's just nothing, maybe it's a coincidence, maybe I'm just reaching for some straws, but I picked up um, that every chapter so far in the book of John has referenced water. Water has been an essential figure throughout the first five chapters of John to this point. In chapter one, Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist in, Jordan, in the Jordan River. In chapter two, he turns water into wine. In chapter 3, we have a story about Jesus now performing baptisms, calling us back to chapter 1 in his own baptism. And then last week in chapter 4, Mike talked about an encounter with Jesus, who was thirsty, looking for water from a Samaritan woman at the well. And today we're going to look at another, another reference to water in John chapter 5. 
Um, but later on even in this book of John, we're going to see Jesus walk on water. We're going to see him wash his disciples' feet with water. And even at one point, he's going to declare himself the living water. Now why? This can't all be just coincidental, right? Why does John keep calling us back to the water? Ultimately, I don't know. I don't know for sure, right? None of us do. But, it, but this isn't anything new for Scripture. The Bible talks about water an incredible amount. It references its beauty and its power. Jesus calms the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Moses parts the Red Sea. Noah builds an ark to avoid a flood. Right? Jonah gets jumps into the sea and gets swallowed by a whale. The Bible, we quickly realize, is not... We, we, excuse me. In the Bible, we quickly realize that water is not just part of it. It's a main character. Right? It's not only a setting or a context. It's a metaphor for a bigger thing. It's a greater force that exists in the world, a force, an element that is equally critical to our survival and a threat to our existence. And it will give, and it will take away. And it's in no way predictable. There's always chaos, and there's always adventure in it. I've had my own experiences with water, um, and I've had to develop a healthy respect for it. I had a sailboat sink uh, miles away from shore in Lake Michigan. Uh, I capsized a canoe um, uh, during a thunderstorm in Lake Superior. I got caught in the undertow on a coral reef and tore up my leg on the rocks. Um, I've had to, I've had to uh, develop my fair share of respect uh, for the lake and for the sea over the years. I have a reverence for it. It's this beautiful, serene, majestic, and magnetizing thing that is equally dangerous and uncontrollable. Before working at Storyline, I spent nearly a decade working with an organization called Young Life. Uh, Young Life's a big part of what we do here at Storyline and uh, has been a big part of my story as well. But part of my job was that every summer I, I was going to take a month and dedicate it to serving at one of Young Life summer camps. They have, a, they have over, almost three dozen camps across the United States. And so about five years ago, um, I was asked to head to Young Life's Clearwater Cove, uh, which is carved into the side of the Ozarks. And I've shared this story before, and so maybe you know where I'm going with this, but it's a story worth telling again. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous place. And I didn't know this going into it, um, I was initially pretty skeptical because, you know, they're sending me to Missouri. But check this out. That's, that's, that's Clearwater Cove. That's where the camp is. And so it's about 1,500 feet up on the top of this mountain. It just looks over the Lake of the Ozarks. It's, it's incredible. Um, now, when, back in 2017, when I went there for the first time, it was a brand new camp. It was, it was only their second summer, and it was the... It was their first without the pool, um, which should be coming up here, right here. It's this massive pool. It's got multiple sun decks. It's got this giant volleyball court, tables around the sides that you could sit um, and, and eat your ice cream in. And of course, they had the diving board, right? This, this big jumping platform. We called it the bridge. Uh, it was about 12 feet up from the, from the surface of the water. Um, and it was really, really fun. The entire camp is kind of built around this pool, and this was definitely the main attraction. Every single day at free time, there was a line wrapped around the pool just to jump off this thing. Well, during our last week at camp, I got to meet uh, a lovely young lady named Kate. 
And uh, Kate came from L Little Rock, Arkansas, and she was part of the Capernaum uh, group there. Capernaum is Young Life's ministry for students with uh, different and diverse abilities. And, um, and Young Life was really, really good about that, of bringing kids from multiple different walks of life to come together to share this week of camp. Um, but everyone loved Kate, right? And Kate loved everyone. She loved ice cream, and she loved the movie Frozen, but she especially loved the pool at Clearwater Cove. And so uh, my job at camp for that month, uh, I was part of the program team, and so I was asked to organize kind of all of the events throughout the day. It was me and my team's uh, job to make sure that kids had something to do from the time they woke up until the time they went to bed uh, for six days straight, and then we would send them home and do it all over again. Um, but on day two, we had planned this big water regatta for the, whole, for the whole camp, essentially like field games, but in the pool. And as part of that event, there was a, a high dive competition. And from the bridge, Kate was, Kate was the only girl in her group. We didn't catch this ahead of time. We should have, but she was the only girl in her group. And so when she was selected to be her, so she was inherently selected to be her team's high diver because you needed a boy and a girl to participate that, in that. And so she climbs excitedly to the platform, to the top of the bridge, uh, and she stands at the edge. She kind of walks up to it, and she stands at the edge right here, toes right over the edge, and she's excited. You can tell the whole camp is engaged, watching her and cheering her on. But then that smile quickly turns to fear, and she steps away from the edge. She couldn't do it. The next day at free time, I'm hanging out the pool, and I watch her. She, she, she climbs up there again as almost to redeem herself. The whole camp isn't there. She's a, little, she's a little bit more secluded, but she gets there. She gets right up to the edge again. She assumes the ready position, and she just couldn't bring herself to jump. This is child abuse. If you drop me, I'll prosecute. I'm going to let go until you're ready, okay? Trust me. Put your hands out like I showed you. I'm not ready. Do you hear me? I'm not ready. Don't drop me. I'm not ready. Dr. Murray! I'm sailing! Whoa! Oh, Siggy. Oh. Oh. Murderer! That's not what happened to Kate, I swear. She didn't get dropped into the pool. But do you, you know that feeling, right? I love, I love that line, if you drop me, I will prosecute. <laughs> Wish I would have had that one when I was 13. Um, we all know that feeling. We've felt that kind of emotion, that kind of fear, that kind of vulnerability, um, that, that feeling of, I've never done this before. What's going to happen when I hit the water? What if I do it wrong? What if I embarrass myself? Ultimately, we're all just trying to avoid this emotion right here, right? Like, that surprise. Think about all the emotion that's in that face right there, that feeling like we jumped into something before we were ready. There's no doubt in my mind that Kate wanted to jump off the bridge that day in the same way that Ziggy here in the movie What About Bob wanted to as well. There's no way he lets Richard Dreyfus hang him over the dock unless there's part of him that wants to get in the water. But like so many of us, we find ourselves trapped between the dream of what we want and the reality of our moment. 
Thank you. So all of that, all of this brings us to John chapter 5, finally. All that was introduction, right? This is one of my favorite stories from the Bible. Jesus is returning to Jerusalem after a journey through the Galilee. And one of his 
first interactions that he has when he gets to the city is at the pool of Bethesda. So when they rebuilt, uh, when they rebuilt the city about um, three, four hundred years before uh, Jesus it comes onto the scene, they built it um, in this place in Jerusalem, and there was this spring that would bubble once a day. And they, this was before modern science and geology, and so there was a, no one really knew why it bubbled, and so uh, there was this belief that it was an angel of God that stirred this pool up. And so they built part of the city around it. They turned it into a pool, and they called it the Pool of Bethesda. Now, it was believed that when the angel stirred the waters of this pool and it began to bubble, that the first person into the pool would receive um, favor from God and that they would be healed from whatever kind of disease or ailment that had affected them. And so Jesus arrives at, into Jerusalem, and he comes to this pool, uh, and he meets a man who'd been sitting at the edge of this pool, the pool of Bethesda, for 38 years. That's five years older than Thomas Jefferson was when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. Still boggles my mind. He's been sitting there at the edge of this pool for 38 years. The Bible describes him as an invalid. Right? So we can assume that some, the condition that he has has caused some kind of paralysis. Um, 38 years he's waited for someone to help him into the pool, and it never happened. Now, the average lifespan for a man in the first century Israel would have been around 30 to 35 years. A lot of that has to do with men dying at a young age because of war. But it was, it's, it's average around 30 to 35 years. Um, but it's safe to say that whatever condition this, this man who's by the edge of the pool was in, he had been in there for most, if not all, of his life. So pause with me for a second. Consider this scenario. Every time this pool was stirred up, every time it would bubble up, the angel would come down and stir it. There would be this mad rush to get into the pool. And so for this man to get into it, everyone would have to stop what they were doing, and somebody else would have to Take the time, right, to pick this man up and to get him into the pool first so that he could be healed. They would have to sacrifice their opportunity to help and, and their healing, right, in order for this man to get into the pool. So for 38 years, nearly four decades, he'd been waiting for this to happen. He'd been sitting at the edge of the pool just waiting for someone to help him for 38 years. So Jesus finds himself at the pool of Bethesda, and he sees this man lying there, unable to get in on his own. And so he walks up to him, and he asks this question. It's really, really striking. Do you want to be well? Now, we have no other record of Jesus' interaction with this man uh, before he asks this question. So I like to imagine it happening literally as it describes. Jesus just walks right up to him out of nowhere and asks what must have felt like the most ridiculously obvious rhetorical question ever. Do you want to be well? His face probably looked like this. Um, just disbelief and surprise. What do you think ran through his head? What are you talking about? Of course I want to be well. Why do you think I've been here for 38 years? All I want in life is to be well. 38 years, Jesus, 38 stinking years, and you're going to patronize me with that asinine question, do I want to be well? At least that's how I would have responded, right? 
Well, let's again step back from the story for a second. What is Jesus asking this man who's been lying in the same position at the same pool for that many years? Why do you think he asks them, do you want to be well? What he's really asking them, excuse me, what he's asking him is, are you ready? Are you ready for life to look completely different? Are you ready to walk? And in, and in turn, are you ready to stumble? Are you ready to move? Are you ready to live? Are you ready to let go of everything that, you've been, that you have known life to be up to this point? Everything you've understood to be true, it's about to change. Do you want to be well? Being well would have meant that we, he would have had to let go of everything he knew to be good and true so that he could live right? Abandoning the expectations of what someone else was, was going to do for him, that somebody else was going to let him into the pool, that somebody else was going to care for him. He would have had to surrender to an even bigger force than a magical pool. 38 years, I bet he had friends there. I bet he knew how to get food and how to get water. He knew how to live his life. 38 years at the edge of the pool, that's no accident. When Jesus is asking him, do you want to be well? It would have meant everything in this man's life changing. Something he'd wanted his whole existence, and yet, was he willing to let it go? So back at Young Life Camp, day four comes along. And in Young Life, day four is historically known as the night that never ends. It's controlled chaos from a programming standpoint. We've literally lined up 10 events back to back. We go from dinner to the opera, right into the carnival, into a square dance, and then dancing through the ages. And then, while everybody's dressed up in these crazy costumes, everybody's got their clothes on, we jump into the pool, right? And once everybody's in the pool, we give them all popsicles, and then we set off a bunch of fireworks. It is like Disney World, except it's in Missouri. Um, <laughs> So it's not as good. But, sorry if you're from Missouri. Um, after the fireworks are done, we keep the pool open, right? Just a little extra free time, let the adrenaline wear off before bed. And so everybody's hanging out. Everybody's had a great time. It's this incredibly magical, incredible night. I'm still dressed as Jerry Dazzlefingers, which is a story for another time. Um, but I'm still in character. It's been an exhausting night, and I'm ready to head to bed when all of a sudden I hear... Kate, 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 Kate. And I look up at the bridge, and there she is, right? Her toes are hanging off the edge, and she's assumed the ready position that the she thinks the water's going to receive her better if she squats. Like, you know what it is? It's cl the closer I can get to the water, the easier it's going to be, right? I almost, I almost lost my balance. Um, except for this time, the whole camp is surrounding the pool. Every person that's involved with Young Life is there on day four. They're in the middle of the pool. They're on the edges of the pool. And Kate is standing there, every single eye on her as she's trying to jump into the water. So I stop. I don't go to bed. I'm like, something's about to happen here. I felt it. So five minutes go by. She's still up there. The whole pool is chanting their name. We're counting down. They want her to jump. Her leader jumps into the deep end of the pool, and he, they try to encourage her 
they try to convince her that, that she's going to be okay, that they can be there to catch her. Ten minutes go by, she's still up there, her toes hanging over the edge of the bridge, but she's still holding on to the guardrail. So dressed as, as Jerry Dazzlefingers, me and my other program characters, we jump into the pool hoping to entice and to encourage her, as if like we can be here and invite you in to the water. Fifteen minutes go by. Twenty minutes go by. A half an hour goes by and she's still up there. She's standing there at the edge of the bridge. Forty minutes have passed. We've sung the entire Frozen soundtrack. We've chanted her name a thousand times. We've counted backwards from a hundred twice. And there she stands at the edge of the bridge. But you want to know the cool part? Every person at camp was still standing there at the edge of the pool, waiting for her to jump. They were all in it for 40 minutes. At this point, the head leaders, they're holding the cabin bell because everyone believed that she was going to get in the water. 45 minutes go by. 50 minutes go by. And at the 55-minute mark, I'm in the pool, I don't know for sure, it felt like the 55-minute mark. <laughs> We're still in the water doing everything we can to get her to believe that it's going to be okay. And I see her leader get out of the pool, and she walks up to the top of the bridge, and she grabs Kate by the arm, and she says, she says, sweetie, we can do this another time. It's getting late, and we all have to go to bed. Oh. Deflating. But Kate pushes her aside, forcefully. And she turns around to look at her, and I hear her say this. She goes, no, I have to do this. I get goosebumps. You can see the hair standing on the end of my arm. I said goosebumps thinking about that and just how incredible it was. My brain didn't register um, that it had happened. It didn't register that she had jumped. In fact, it was only by grace alone that she didn't jump right on top of me. Uh, but literally landing right here. But when her feet hit the water and as you saw that pool erupted, it was as if there was this collective realization that we had just witnessed something so much bigger than ourselves in that moment. It may seem like Kate just jumped off of a diving board and into a pool. It may just seem like she overcame her fear. But in this moment, a young woman standing at the edge, she knew what she had to do. Knowing that even though everything in her mind, body, and soul is telling her not to, she knew she had to. She had to jump in. She had to let go of the stability, let go of the structure, the safety of the bridge so that she could experience the fullness of the pool, so that she could experience the thrill and the joy of what was waiting for her. And this is what Jesus is asking us when he says, do you want to be well? Are you ready to give up the comfort, the stability of life outside of the pool? He's asking Kate, are you ready to jump? He's asking this man who's been sitting at the edge of the pool for 38 years, are you ready for everything to change? 
He's asking Thomas Jefferson, is it worth the risk? You see, we're all Kate. We're all this man at the edge of the pool. We all have the pen in our hand, and Jesus is asking, do you want to be well? Do you want to join me? Do you want the living water that will never run out, that will never leave you wanting more? Are you ready? The reality is we're not as strong as we think we are. Jesus knows that. And that's where grace comes in. And it's in the jumping, it's in the letting go of our own strength that we experience the strength of God. To be well means letting go of the stability, the comfort, the certainty, the predictability, everything we know to be true that has us stuck in a malaise of our own self-indulgence. We, when we let it go, we are transformed by the mystery and the majesty of the living water, by the living and working grace of God. Is it an easier way to live? No. Is it safer? Certainly not. It's not predictable. It's not stable. It's not certain. It's a leap of faith. It's recognizing the limits of our own strength, but jumping anyway. Trusting in the hope of the future that God holds. I promise it's worth it. It has to be. Because in it, there's joy, and there's celebration, and there's community. And above all else, there's hope. Well, it took the hand of God Almighty to part the waters in the sea. But it only took one little lie to separate you and me. Oh, we are not as strong. As we think we are. And they say that one day Joshua made the sun stand still in the sky. But I can't even keep these thoughts of you from passing by. Oh, we are not as strong as we think we are. We are frail, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Forged in the fires of human passion Choking on the fumes of selfish rage And with these our hells and our heavens So few inches apart We must be awfully small and Not as strong as we think we are And they say the Master said was gonna make the mountains move But me, I tremble like a hill on a fault line Just at the thought of how I lost you Oh, we are not as strong As we think we are We are frail, we are fearfully and wonderfully made Forged in the fires of human passion 
Choking on the fumes of selfish rage And with these our hells and our heavens So few inches apart We must be awfully small Not as strong as we think we are And if you make me laugh, I know I can make you like me. Cause when I laugh, I can be a lot of fun. But we can't do that, I know that it is frightening. But what I don't know is why we can't hold on. We can't hold on. When you love, you walk on water Just don't stumble on the waves We all want to go there, something awful But to stand there takes some grace Oh, we are not as strong As we think we are Oh not as strong as we think we See, we are all Kate on the bridge. We are all the man at the edge of the pool. We all have the pen in our hand. And Jesus is asking, do you want to be well? Are you ready to experience life, to experience a full life where joy and grace and mercy are overflowing, that when you jump in, you can't help but just be overwhelmed by it all. Do you want to be well? He's not asking for anything else from us other than an answer to that question. So may you jump in. May you jump into the water. May you let go of the bridge and experience the fullness of the joy and grace that God has for you. May you stand up, may you pick up your mat and walk because of the desire to be well just wants to pour out of you. May you put your pen to paper declaring your independence, declaring your well-being to the life that God has for you. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Have a wonderful Sunday, friends. We'll see you next week.